0: CUA is the voice of urology in Canada. Europedia Canada is your resource
1: for education. Visit cua.org.
2: Well, welcome to the CUA webinar on the highlights of GUASCO 2022. My name is Anil Kapoor out of McMaster University. And unfortunately, uh, Dr. Alan So, the original host, is not able, unable to make it tonight. So I'm happy to fill in for him. The agenda tonight is a a first session on prostate cancer, second session on bladder cancer, and a third on kidney cancer with a five minute break between them. We're happy to field any questions during the course of the talks uh, and ask our panel of experts about what their thoughts are on your questions. This is a accredited group learning activity section one uh, so you can claim a maximum of 2.5 hours of credit for tonight's program. And these uh, certificates will be emailed to you right after the webinar. We'd like to uh, thank our sponsors for tonight's program. The gold sponsors are Estellus, Janssen, Bayer and Pfizer. And our silver sponsors are AstraZeneca, Merck, Azi, and cigen By the end of the program, participants will be able to review updates in prostate, bladder, and kidney cancers, discuss new developments aimed at improving patient care, and engage in discussion with leading experts and peers through this program. So without further ado, we'll uh, introduce uh, Dr. Tamim Niazzi, who will give our first presentation on the prostate cancer highlights of GUASCO. Thanks, Tamim. Uh, Thank you, Anil. I'll just uh, share my slides.
0: Please give me a heads up if my slides work. I'll be discussing two abstracts uh, from Asco G. Prostate session, and these are my uh, disclosures. Uh, The first is the Aracens, which was presented last week by uh, Matthew Smith and uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine at the same time. RSN studies a phase three randomized trial assessing the role of uh, darutamide and metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer patients who are treated with ADT and dozataxel six cycles. The primary endpoint was primary uh, overall survival and secondary endpoint time to CRPC, time to pain progression, uh, symptomatic escalate event, as well as time to new um, antineoplastic therapies. Over 1,300 patients were randomized in this study, again, with an ECOG zero or one. Looking at baseline demographics and disease characteristics, as you can see here, pretty balanced between the two arms. Just to focus on two things in this uh, uh, table, one that um, patients were allowed or eligible if they had metachronous uh, um, um, MHSPC, meaning that they have had local therapy in the past, and they progressed to metastasis. This was about 13% of the patients that you can see here. And then also a majority of the patient, 86% of the patient had de novo metastasis. And looking at this uh, part of the table, again, majority of the patient had either bone metastasis or visceral metastasis. Again, they allowed non-regional lymph node metastasis, but only 3% of the patients had that. And again, they have not defined how many of the patients with bone metastasis had low or high volume disease. So this is the primary endpoint um, results. Patients who received darlutamide had significant improvement in overall survival. The risk of death were decreased by 32.5% in favor of darlutamide with a hazard ratio of 0.68 and a p-value of less than 0.001. And this, despite the fact that majority of the patients in the placebo arm had second uh, subsequent line of uh, life prolonging uh, therapies, including ABI, inzalutamide, cabazitaxel, docetaxel, radium, 223, supercell T, lutetium, and apolutamide. Looking at this graph, overall survival with respect to subgroup analysis, every group, subgroup uh, benefit from the addition of darolutamide, focusing more on patients who presented de novo metastasis, as you can see here, and one or the patients who actually had local therapy and progressed uh, to metastasis, they also benefit from the addition of darolutamide. Looking at this in graphically, as you can see here, patients who had de novo metastasis has a ratio of 0.71. Patient who had uh, metacronis or uh, recurred to metastasis after local therapy has a ratio of 0.61. Secondary endpoints, especially time to CRPC and time to pain progression, significantly improved with a hazard ratio of 036 and 0.79. Looking at adverse events, again, as you can see here in both arms, adverse events of any grades were pretty similar across the two arms. And this basically is uh, almost a replicate of what we saw in the ARAMIS, not much different compared to the placebo. Looking at adverse events of a special interest, again, keep in mind that these uh, adverse events are specific to specific uh, ARATs, but overall, there was no difference uh, with respect to darutamide and the placebo, as you can see here, m- m- predominantly equal uh, presence across the board. So, the conclusion of the study was that darutamide, in combination with ADT and was significantly improved OS compared with ADT and attacks in patients with MHSPC. Darutamide reduced risk of death by almost 33%. Darolutamide improved OS despite a very high rate of subsequent life prolonging therapy and placebo arm. The OS benefit for Darolutamide was considered across all pre-specified subgroups and Darolutamide also significantly improved key secondary input, interestingly and importantly, time to castration resistant and time to pain progression as well as SSE. The rate of adverse events against were very similar between the Darolutamide and placebo group. So moving on to the next abstract, the effect of uh, prior dozotaxel on efficacy and safety on apolutamide and ADT in MHSBC. This is a Titan's post hoc analysis. We'll review this and we'll have a few slides to discuss the two together at the end, time permitting. So again, just to refresh as you all know, Titan was a phase two randomized clinical trial of over a thousand patients randomized 2-to-1 uh, uh, apollutamide versus um, placebo for patients with MHSPC and ADT. Again, the primary endpoint or the, the dual primary endpoint was overall survival and RPFS and a panel of secondary endpoints. This is a graph of the long-term uh, results that was presented by uh, Kim Chi. Again, um, apollutamide significantly improved uh, overall survival uh, for patients with MHSPC who are on ADT. So in this study, uh, the objective of this study was to assess outcome in patients who have had received docetaxel prior to starting uh, apolitamide and in this study. Keep in mind that Titan did allow prior uh, dose docetaxel as long as docetaxel finished less than two months of the randomization. And again, this post hoc analysis of the RPFS was done during the first interim analysis and the os time to psa progression and PSA neither less than 0.2 was done at the final analysis and the overall upper group as you know was 524 patients and 58 of those received dose taxol which is 11% of the patient received dose taxol and the upper arm and looking at uh, the patient characteristic or disease characteristic uh, for the patient who have received dose and who did not as you can see here interestingly that Majority of the patients who received those attacks had higher Gleason score, as well as high volume disease, looking at 76% compared to 60%, as well as uh, visceral metastasis were more often this patient, and more than 10-born metastasis was higher, 60%, almost to 40%. So again, keep in mind, this is a small study, just a hypo, more a hypothesis generating. The result of this study was that in the overall apatriate treated population, and a subset of patients with high-volume disease, the RPFS, overall survival, time to PSA progression, and the depth of PSA respond a response to less than 0.2 were similar in the patients who have received docetaxel or who did not receive those attacks. Again, patients with low volume were very small, again, less than 11 patients, so that they cannot make major conclusion from that, but from the high volume patients, the outcomes seem to be equivalent. Looking at this graphically, as you can see here, these two graphs are pretty much superimposable. Looking at overall survival, time to PSA progression, as well, as well as confront PAC less than 0.2 uh, the, uh, for patients who have received those attacks the, in the past or less than two months prior to randomization had no difference. So again, the conclusion of uh, post hoc Titan study was that in the overall APA treated Titan population with or without much baseline disease characteristic, with or without high or low volume disease, the clinical outcome with APA plus ADT were similar regardless of this patient receiving dozotaxel, suggesting that dozotaxel did not add to them. So that being said, so let's wrap up these two abstracts together to look at um, Arison's final conclusion was that darutamide in combination with ADT and dozotaxel should become a new standard of care for treatment of MHSPC patients. While the post hoc analysis of Titan, also a smaller study, keep in mind as a post hoc, says that um, the Titan showed that uh, prior use of those attacks did not add to um, apolutamide for patients with MHSPC. So that being said, again, Titan is a post-hoc analysis. It's a small study, a limited number, um, and that um, uh, the, the, the main practical point is that uh, triplet therapies for MHSPC, given the piece one data and now the ARISINs probably is becoming the newest standard of care. Is it the newest center of care for all patients or only high volume patients? That's the question that we that we probably need to, add to the answer. Looking at the graph of arisins, as you can see, significant improvement in favor of um, dilutamide. Looking at uh, piece one, all patients together, there was significant improvement as well. But piece one also presented last ESMO, uh, the difference between low volume and high volume disease. As you can see here on the left-hand side, The high-volume patient did benefit significantly, again, as you can see here with a significant p-value and a very important hazard ratio. Looking at uh, low-volume disease, this is the question, is it because this is going to diverge more, the hazard ratio is 0.83, but the p-value is not significant. Is it too early to analyze this, or there is no difference, Uh, this is going to be, I think, uh, uh presented again either uh, next year ASCOGU or esmo so this is for low volume not much data with the piece one and for high volume is the same thing as uh, what we see with uh, arisons and again this question was brought up at us um, at, at last week uh, to uh, matthew smith and he um, did tell uh, tell us that uh, the analysis of low volume versus low high volume is in the process being done and they have a subsequent publication that's coming in. So at the end, to conclude this, I think triplet therapies is the newest standard and high-volume uh, mesothelic hormone sensitive prostate cancer patients. For low volume, I think we need to wait for the updated result of the piece one and the analysis that's ongoing with um, arisins to come up. That's my, And also, I think that's what I said. This is my last slide. I'll get back to you.
2: Dr. Niazzi, thank you so much. That was a great presentation. And I think there are some discussion points we would like to go through at the end of uh, the prostate cancer session about whether all high volume prostate cancer patients should go on triple therapy or not. Um, and um, I have my own thoughts on that, but let's save it for the, for the question period at the end. And uh, let's go on uh, to Dr. Krista Noonan, uh, who is a medical oncologist at the BC Cancer agency. So, Krista, Dr. Noonan, thank you very much for presenting to us today on Prostate Cancer GUASCO highlight
1: Thanks so much. Um, Here are my disclosures. So, um, I was, I'm really, uh, I feel like uh, we should be really proud Canadians because Dr. Saad presented the PROPEL data at the oral abstract session uh, the prostate cancer, and then Dr. Chi presented the magnitude study. So, it's with great pleasure for me to present those two to you tonight and to discuss the uh, the clinical implications. So, let's dive right into the Propel study. So, this was a phase one, a phase three uh, trial of elaparib and abiraterone versus placebo and abiraterone as first line therapy for patients with metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer. By way of background, we're all familiar here that the median survival is about three years when you look at the first-line mCRPC clinical trial setting. However, we also know that only half of these patients receive more than one line of therapy. There's a lot of attrition. And so in those patients, the survival is less than two years. So there's a huge unmet need here. We also know that olaparib monotherapy improves radiographic PFS and OS in the profound study cohort A, RACA1, brca 2 and ATM. And there's data um, in the uh, phase two trial looking at olaparib and abiraterone with respect to improvement in radiographic PFS. And this was in um, an unselected, so it was actually irrespective of homologous recombination mutation status. Then we also know that there is good preclinical rationale as to the combination. We know that novel hormonal agents uh, can induce HRR deficiency and increase susceptibility to PARP inhibition, and we also know that PARP is report to increase the activity of NHA uh, via an AR-dependent transcription. So let's take a look at the study schema here. A few things to point out. So this was a first-line study. They did allow prior taxol in the MCSPC setting. They did not allow prior abiraterone, so that's distinctly different from the magnitude study. They allowed prior NHAs as long as it was one year before enrollment. And then uh, stratification factors, including distant, uh, cytodistant metastases, prior taxane, what we didn't uh, see here was uh, the, this was actually an all comer population. So this was not pre-specified based on HRR status. Um, there was a one-to-one randomization between full dose olaparib, so 300 milligrams BID plus abiraterone versus placebo abiraterone. The primary endpoint was RPFS by investigator assessment. And as I alluded to HRR mutation prevalence was retrospective testing. Taking a look at the patient characteristics, these were generally well-balanced. About 22% of patients have prior dose to taxol. And then of note, they, all, they use plasma and tissue to assess HR mutation status. There was failure of tissue testing at about 30%. And we've seen that in the past. However, if you look at the proportion of patients with HR mutations, very similar to, than what we've seen in other studies, such as the, uh, the profound study of about 28%. Taking, taking a look at the primary endpoint, there was an impressive improvement in radiographic PFS by investigator assessment, 34% risk reduction in progression or death. A couple of things to point out here, the Delta here was quite impressive at 8.2 months. Uh, secondly, the median in the abbey alone, Abi and PRED arm, was spot on to the Cougar 302, so behaved as expected. And the P-value was highly statistically significant. This was also seen in the blinded independent central review here, hazard ratio of 0.63, favoring the combination of Olaparib and Abiraterone. When we see the subgroup analyses, and I think a lot of us were waiting for this, <laughs> and um, I like to highlight here, uh, the there was a consistency of benefit uh, throughout all subgroups. And in particular, the HRR mutated, you see here hazard ratio of 0.50. But even in the non-mutated, you're seeing a hazard ratio that's watered da- a bit watered down, 0.76. However, the confidence interval lies to the left of unity, indicating benefit in this subgroup as well. So uh, overall survival is not yet mature, so, uh, but certainly there is late separation here. So we we'll look forward to uh, the updated analysis as we get more mature uh, data. And then there was a Delta with respect to improvement in response rate by about 10% with the uh, addition of the Olaparib to abiraterone. It was generally well tolerated, uh, where discontinuation in the Olaparib arm about 14% versus 8% in the placebo abiraterone. And these are known side effects uh, that we see with the combination. Um, There was no apparent synergy with respect to toxicities. Uh, one thing to note would be the um, anemia rate of 15% grade 3 or higher. And then with respect to quality of life, this was reassuring. The FACT-P show was stable over time, showing quality of life comparable between the treatment arms. So the conclusion was that there was an improvement in radiographic PFS, um, and this was irrespective of HR mutation status and that the safety uh, profile was uh, certainly reasonable when there was no detriment to quality of life. Now let's let's switch gears and look at the magnitude study. This was presented by Dr. Chi. It was the first results of neraparib with abiraterone and prednisone as first-line therapy in patients with metastatic CRPC with and without HRR gene alterations. So let's just spend a little bit of time on the study schema because I think this is very important. This was distinctly different trial. It actually prospectively selected biomarker cohorts. And you see here the pre-screening status, HRR assessment. There was nine genes assessed and they were allocated to either uh, biomarker positive or biomarker negative. And there was a few uh, differences with respect to eligibility as well with prior abiraterone being allowed. There was one-to-one randomization between, elap- pardon me, plus abipred versus placebo abipred. And the primary endpoint was radiographic PFS by central review. There was an, a pre-specified early futility analysis in the biomarker negative group. And you can see here, these patients, actually there was no benefit from the, in the norepirib plus abiraterone, and therefore the study w- had stopped enrollment of this subgroup. They continue with the biomarker positive, And you can see here, there's generally a uh, good balance between the two arms. A couple of things to point out. Number one is that there were higher rates of visceral metastases in the niraparib abbey arm. And then there were a higher uh, proportion of ECOG zero patients in the placebo abbey arm. And this may bias against the niraparib arm. Taking a look at the primary endpoint, this is the BRCA1, BRCA2 mutated, and you can see here there was statistically significant clinically meaningful benefit in the radiographic PFS with niraparib added to abiraterone prednisone, median of 16.6 months versus 10.9, hazard ratio of 0.53, and similar when looked at by investigator. If you take a look now at all HRR biomarkers, so adding in that extra seven um, alterations, you're seeing here uh, a bit of watering down of effect of the hazard ratio of 0.73. And uh, certainly the delta is not as impressive here, 13.7 versus 16.5. There was um, uh, consistency of effect. I would caution in making any um, conclusions about this small subgroup. Um, However, you take a look here at the other HRR hazard ratio of 0.99, we are yet to see a gene-by-gene analysis of this. Um, And then overall survival was not yet mature. Interestingly, there was a near doubling of response rate in the all HRR patients, as well as the BRCA1, BRCA2 mutated patients. Pretty impressive. And the health-related quality of life was maintained uh, with the combination by FACT-P And quality of life, uh, you know, when you look at the the, uh, treatment-related AEs, they were as expected, mainly hematologic as well as GI. Um, And take a look at the grade three or higher uh, anemia rates was close to 30%, but generally manageable with transfusions and supportive care. So in summary, there was improvement in radiographic PFS uh, in the biomarker positive population, but not in the biomarker negative population. You're seeing, um, you know, a a more impressive hazard ratio if you look at the BRCA1, BRCA2 versus the all comers. So 47% versus 27% radiographic PFS improvements there. So, in conclusion, um, this the this study supports the testing of HRR when you're trying to select uh, who will benefit from norelpsib plus abiraterone and prednisone. I think for me, one of the important things is understanding that these are different studies, different uh, designs, and certainly different inclusion criteria. So, it's very challenging for us as a community to do any direct trial comparisons between these two studies. The other thing to note is we don't really know the BRCA subgroup in the PROPEL, so we certainly do need that data moving forward. I think the author should be congratulated for showing impressive uh, radiographic PFS with the PARP inhibitor and ARSI combinations. OS data is readily awaited. I also await a gene-by-gene analysis of outcomes, as well as wonder whether the prolonged treatment with myelosuppressive drug may impact the tolerability of later lines of therapy. And the other question is, does, is this study relevant? And I think given our low rates of intensification um, uh, with ARSIs and docetaxel and MCSPC setting, I think it's currently still relevant. Hopefully moving forward though, we can improve as a community in the intensification of these patients. And also finally, just to keep an eye out for the Amplitude study, uh, it's currently enrolling with Naraparib Abbey, Talib Pro 3. We're moving things earlier in the MCSPC setting. So we'll have more, more data forthcoming. And um, with that, I will hand it back over to, uh, to I think, Ricardo, you're up next. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Dr. Noonan, That was fantastic. And uh, indeed, we'll pass it on to Dr. Uh, Rendon. There's already a few questions coming in. And uh, We'll take them after Dr. Rendon's talk. Uh, as you know, Dr. Rendon is a uro-oncologist at Dalhousie University. Uh, thank you, Ricardo, for presenting today.
3: So, um, uh, thanks for uh, for the introduction. So uh, those were the important abstracts that were re- uh, presented during the ASCO-GU. So I'm going to discuss a couple more that we thought were uh, relevant, but are definitely not gonna be practice uh, changing. Um, so the first one is the preside trial. So basically the preside trial is a trial where patients are have um uh, are taken do- uh, um and then they progress on ensalutamide and they go on to continue on docetaxel with or without ensalutamide. And um so let's talk a little bit about the design. So basically, these are patients who had uh, metastatic, cancer resistant prostate cancer uh, who had not received chemotherapy and were not particularly symptomatic. They had a period one open label uh, phase where they followed them for about three months. And during that time, they tried to figure out if they were going to, uh, they were one, truly progressing, and two, if they were having very fast progression. Which was not going to make them eligible uh, for subsequent salutamide. So once they went through this uh, open uh, label phase, they went into the double blind period, which randomized, as I said earlier, patients on doxie and uh, prednisone plus, uh, plus minus enceludamide. The primary endpoint was disease uh, uh, progression, either radiographic or unequivocal anacubic, uh, clinical. Uh, progression. several other secondary endpoints. So of interest, they screened for period one 816 patients. And of those, they only included uh, 271 patients in the phase two of period two. So that's about a third of those patients became eventually uh, candidates for this trial. So you can see that it's not a big uh, uh, component of the patients who were uh, screened. Their uh, uh, result, primary endpoint, uh, was met. So a progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.72, so a 28% improvement in uh, progression-free survival. And I'd like to point at you uh, the fact that the uh, median time of progression in months for ENSA was 9.53 and 8.28 for placebo, so about uh, uh, 1.1% months and the secondary endpoint uh, time to speed progression uh, correlated as well uh, with the primary endpoint with a median difference of uh, 6.24 to 8.44 so about two months uh, improvement in uh, survival uh, of importance i'd like to bring to your attention the side effects uh, the, all the uh, treatment uh, side effects were very similar, treatment-related, but the serious uh, side effects were seven at uh, 5.1 uh, uh, percent uh, in the, the uh, ensalutamide group and at uh, 7.4 in the uh, non-ensalutamide group. And in terms of deaths, there were 9.6 uh, percent in uh, this uh, group. Uh, versus uh, 5.2% in the control group. So there was uh, some additional toxicity in uh, patients receiving the combination of ENSA with docetaxel. So these are the conclusions from the author is that in patients uh, who have progressed on enzalutamide, patients who continued on enzalutamide treatment in combination with docetaxel led to a significant improvement of progression-free survival compared with placebo plus docetaxel. And uh, uh, this uh, should become an option. So a couple of things that I'd like to bring up. Uh, One is, uh, yes, it was a significant improvement. It's definitely a statistical uh, improvement of about 28% uh, PFS reduction. What's to be uh, questioned is this uh, clinical uh, uh, difference with a month, one month, uh, progression-free survival difference. And the other thing that we saw is that there are some added side effects. And when we look at the different subgroups, uh, we can see that patients who actually had uh, soft tissue metastasis or soft tissue and bone metastasis actually did better than patients who have bony metastasis. So definitely not an option for patients with uh, bony metastatic disease. So this is uh, uh, the first uh, trial. Um, So the second trial is the ACDC uh, radical prostatectomy trial. So it's led led by uh, Neil Fleschner and a lot of uh, uh, Canadian investigators, as uh, you can see there. So the primary objective is uh, to compare the pathological complete response or minimal residual disease response after neoadjuvant treatment uh, with uh, luprolide and abiraterone with or without cabazitaxel in high-risk localized uh, prostate cancer patients. So this is the study schema. Uh, first of all, I'd like to point at you that the high-risk definition was patients with a PSA of more than 20, or a Gleason score that was at least eight in at least two cores positive for a tumor, or a, PSA, uh, a Gleason of four plus three, with a combined PSA of more than 10, with at least three cores. They had to be candidates for surgery. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, the patients uh, were randomized to either luprolide and nabiraterone plus minus um, uh, cabatitaxel. And we were looking uh, at a a complete response and minimal uh, uh, residual disease. So, these are the characteristics here on the left of, uh, of the patients uh, that was very uh, similar. And on the right, you can see that there was no difference in complete responses or the combination on complete response and minimal residual disease. The only thing that they were able to see is the patients who had chemo uh, had less negative margins and they had a higher, uh, so a, a lower uh, nodal. Uh, positive uh, disease. In terms of safety outcomes, uh, they saw more deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary uh, embolism in the patients uh, receiving uh, ABI and chemotherapy. So they concluded that uh, there was uh, no uh, significant benefit from adding uh, cabacitaxel to those patients receiving aberadron um, um, uh, before they undergo. Um, radical prostatectomy. So takeaways from this is uh, one is uh, we have seen this in several uh, trials now in neoadjuvant uh, trials that thromboembolic prophylaxis is recommended for patients in neoadjuvant trials. We're seeing the same thing in the uh, PROTEUS trial uh, using uh, palutamide and uh, uh, luprolide. And the other thing is maybe when we look back at the characteristics of the patients, They did not have, they have uh, high risk disease, but not very high Mm -hmm. risk disease. So maybe it makes more sense to uh, uh, do this trial again in patients with very high risk disease where chemo uh, might be more uh, effective. So these are uh, the two trials that uh, I was presenting today. So we were uh, waiting uh, for these trials, but uh, clearly uh, not practice uh, changing. Thank you.
2: Wonderful, Dr. Rendon. That was an excellent summary of those two trials. And we'll get to Krista and uh, to Mim to uh, go back. We have about 15, actually about 10 minutes for questions. And um, maybe I'll start with the first question by Dr. Fernando, Um, a PARP inhibitor question, I guess, for you, Dr. Noonan. At present, PARP inhibitors are indicated in BRCA1 and 2, positive patients, despite many other gene mutations are involved, ATM, MSH2, RAD1, why only patients with BRCA1 and 2 mutations are eligible for PARP inhibitors?
1: Yeah, so I would say that based on the profound study, the primary endpoint was cohort A. So what they'd done was they designed a study with BRCA1, BRCA2, and ATM, higher prevalent genes in cohort A. In cohort B, there was a number of rare mutations. And there are different labels depending on the country. So if you look at the FDA label, they actually approved it for all of the alterations in both uh, cohort A and cohort B. Here in Canada and in the US, based on the primary endpoint, which was indeed cohort A, the on-label indication is BRCA1, BRCA2, and ATM. What is really key here though, is that not all mutations and alterations are created equally. When you look at the gene-by-gene gene analysis of the, of the profound study you're really seeing hazard ratios of 0.93 for atm um, as well as some of the other alterations as well don't really appear to derive as much benefit so i would say that you know that we need to be i think more granular with respect to uh, to assessment of these Now, of course, that raises the question as to, you know, uh, what to do now, given the PROPEL data, whether or not we should be uh, using this in all comers versus doing it in the mutation um, of the HRR mutated patients. I think for me, I'd like to have more data, a gene-by-gene analysis in that subgroup. You did note the watering down of effect of that hazard ratio when you went from looking at the HRR mutated with the hazard ratio in the 0.5 upwards to, 0.7 0.7 when you included the uh when you looked at sort of all comers. So for me I think um you know I'm more inclined to use it in the HRR mutated population of patients but I'd certainly be interested to hear what uh, what uh, your thoughts on this are as well.
2: Well I, I mean I personally would agree uh, that uh, those are the patients that would benefit and but as you mentioned it would be nice to see an overall survival and uh, there's some, um, uh, whether well, this is gonna to come to prime time anytime soon, really remains to be seen. Dr. Rendon and Dr. Niazzi, do you have any comments on that?
3: Uh, uh, no, I, I fully agree with, uh, with Kristen,
2: so not much to add. All right, another question we have here is, do the results of the PROPEL and magnitude studies change how you will select ARAT chemo and metastatic CSBC? Ie earlier in the disease trajectory, I like this question because uh, I like to see how you're going to answer that one, Krista.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for me, I um, I like to use you know the level one evidence to uh, to inform my practice, and I think Tim did a wonderful job looking at the triplet with the darolutamide and docetaxel. Certainly, I think it's going to be compelling for us to be using triplets in the high volume population of patients. But I also my last slide did allude to the fact that that this actually is being looked at the combination of an ARPI plus PARP inhibitor in the telepro three as well as the amplitude studies. So that's one of the things that I'm actually doing is we're screening for patients for those for the amplitude study uh, and uh, trying to enroll to that. So that would be (laughs) I I guess hedging my bet with a clinical trial first and then um, of course using triplets in the high volume population um, but I think the take-home message here is you always want to use your best drugs first you don't because you know there is going to be attrition over time um, so I think that's really key is for us as, as a community to improve uh, the treatment of MCSPC.
2: I 100% agree with that I-, I think it'd be it's worthwhile to get Tailored therapy for these patients by doing their genetic testing early on. So, in Ontario, we're funded to do genetic uh, uh, testing or um, mainstreaming uh, for patients with any patient with metastatic prostate cancer, uh, even high risk patients going for radiation or surgery are candidates for the testing. And, and that would help us tailor the prop- appropriate therapy for these patients. I think that's very important. So you know what? How would you select for ARAT and chemo and metastatic CSBC? They should get genetic testing right away, and then tailor the therapy accordingly. Dr. Niazzi, Dr. Rendon, any comments on that? Um.
3: Okay. No, I I, no, I was I had more comments about the the using uh, more more about the Arasent than. Than this, but definitely. So we 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 screen all our patients uh, here. We do uh, somatic testing in all our patients uh, to determine uh, what treatments to do. As uh, we learn more from uh, clinical trials and uh, from biomarkers, we'll be able to start to use at earlier stages. Right now, the only time when it actually changes what we do is uh, just about patients are going to develop metastatic CRPC. And, and same thing, uh,
0: as uh, uh, Krishna mentioned, uh, we have uh, patients with high volume, we uh, screen them for amplitude, and if they turn out to be negative and they're high volume disease, then I have a discussion with our medical oncologist to try to um, push for triple therapy. Since piece one, now that we have Aerosense, <laughs> I think I probably will have an easier time for the medical oncologist to give chemotherapy for high volume patients.
2: Let's talk about Aerosense for a little bit. The- and uh, I think there's a question from Dr. or a handout from Dr. Jundi, Dr. Jundi, your hand is up. If you have a question, just type it in and we're happy to answer it. Dr. Kassouf um, has a um, uh, commentary, uh, adding darolutamide to ADT plus chemo is beneficial as per Aerosense. It does not answer the question if we need to add chemo to EDT plus darrow. I think that's um, uh, kind of the big discussion point is, uh, Tamim, uh, is does, do all patients need chemotherapy, all the high-risk patients? Do you think that we should change our practice now as per piece one, as per Aerosense, that patients who have de novo metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, should they all go on triplet therapy um, directly to the medical oncologist to go on uh, chemo with uh, the ARAT? I think I've heard some uh, discussion that the main thing is the ARAT. The patient should go on the ARAT uh, with the EDT, and then the chemo, we have to select out the correct patient, the correct high-risk patient. What are your thoughts on that, Tamim?
0: And I agree with you, uh, Anil, and also with uh, wasim uh, Looking at um, uh, Titan's post hoc analysis, that was exactly the question that does, does chemo add to everybody. They use the very high-volume patients, more than 10 metastases. So again, post hoc analysis and then comparing Aracens and piece one I think not all high-volume patients, I mean, if you look at charted uh, definition of three plus one, probably not those, but uh, patients who have really high volume and uh, high PSAs and high collisions, I think those patients probably will benefit from triple therapy given these two data. I think these patients should be discussed at a multidisciplinary clinic with medical oncologists, Radon, euros together, and uh, I would be proponent of patients who have less than five metastases to go on our Canadian PR20, of course. And then for patients who have more than five and need to be discussed for triple therapy.
3: Right. So uh, so there, I don't think we can compare Titan and Enzamed to to and PIS-1 because those were more sequential uh, chemo. So even though uh, uh, the 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 Titan study was negative for, for chemotherapy. There was more sequential with uh, the trials that we're talking about is uh, more uh, concomitant. On the other hand, I completely agree with that fact that uh, we have proven that when you are giving chemotherapy to a patient, they should be receiving an ARAD. I, I don't think there's much discussion, uh, but we have seen really good results with abiraterone alone in the long-term uh, stampede arm with abiraterone alone. So I think we still have to uh, determine uh, what are the ideal patients for uh, receiving chemotherapy plus an ARAT plus ADT. Uh, not entirely sure it's going to be all AD, uh, all uh, high volume patients. It have to be uh, healthier, younger, and uh, and finally, where uh, as Anil started, we're probably looking at our patients from a very gross. Uh, Uh, perspective defining high volume and low volume the way we've been defining so as we get more biomarkers we'll we'll know a little better Uh, but I'm not entirely sure we're ready particularly when the community is still struggling with doublet therapies with minimal attrition to the doublet therapies uh, switching to a a, a triple therapies um, for uh, all our high patient volume patients I'm not sure we're ready for that yet.
2: I I, uh, would agree with you, Ricardo. So to me, there's some data out of Ontario that for hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, only 15% of patients are getting doublet therapy, right? So, uh, I mean, we still have a long way to go to even get them on an ARAT. Um, So maybe I'll oppose this to Krista. uh, Dr. Noonan, do you think that we should be sending all the hormone-sensitive prostate cancer patients to medical oncology for a discussion, at least a high volume for discussion about uh, docetaxel. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think that it's important to have the discussion. I definitely echo Ricardo's comments regarding fitness for chemotherapy. Um, And I think when you look at the real world data for early intensification with docetaxel, here in BC, our numbers are looking like about 10%. So not a huge volume, volume of patients. So, but I think it does warrant a discussion. I think, you know, we all know that prostate cancer is a team sport. So really critical to have those conversations um, and critical to define the subgroup that's deriving benefits. So I look forward to the translational uh, aspects of the studies as well.
3: Wonderful. So that 10% is uh, patients not being referred mostly, right? It's not that they're fit or not fit for treatments. It's mostly that they're not being referred, right?
1: So we didn't look at it to that degree. I think it's probably mm-hmm. a combination of the fact that they're, you know, either chemo unfit, uh, patient refusal, um, and then not referred. So mm-hmm. that's, there's probably a combination of factors, to be honest. Yeah.
3: Okay. So I, sure. I think at the end of the day, what we need to do is we have to increase the, the, the flow of these patients through our cancer centers to, uh, for multidisciplinary discussions. Yeah.
2: 100% agree, Ricardo. I think it's important to at least have their discussion at the MCCs. Um, last question, Ricardo, for you before we go it's 745. Uh, so the last question, then we're going to go to a five-minute break. Dr. Rendon from Dr. Fernando, uh, why give chemo before prostatectomy? Is this a normal practice in Canada?
3: So no, we don't uh, give uh, chemo here. Um, actually, it has been uh, studied uh, before in uh, at Memorial long Kettering, and the study was uh, was uh, negative. And then, so now it's been revisited again. Uh, so I don't think, uh, obviously, chemo didn't uh, uh, add anything to this. As I said, I think the the patients were not high risk enough to be able to benefit from uh, chemotherapy. And uh, we also did a trial here locally in Halifax uh, with Medonk and Radonc offering uh, docetaxel and hormones and, and, and chemo for those patients. And they actually didn't do well either. So I think it has to do a lot with the, with the risk level. Uh, but right now, the standard of care is uh, just straight out uh, surgery, uh, no neoadjuvant hormones or ARATs or uh, definitely not chemotherapy. And this study has not changed that but we'll start to see a lot of uh, trials coming out with neoadjuvant um, ARATs uh, before chemotherapy, sorry, before surgery or before radiation for these patients.
2: Thank you. So Dr. Niazi, Dr. Noonan, Dr. Rendon, thank you very much for a lively discussion and uh, great presentations. Any final words you want to impart before we let you go? Dr. Rendon, you always have the last word.
3: Um, nothing. Okay.
2: That's the first. No, I, I
3: no, it, I, I think it, it was exciting. We're uh, waiting for these trials and uh, it's, uh it's exciting to see the field moving and it's going to continue to move. It's actually getting very difficult to stay on top of, of, uh, of this is getting more and more difficult. So I think this is a very, uh, very helpful event for all of us to try to stay on top of, uh, the recent changes.
2: Super. Thanks so much. We're going to take a. Thank you. Uh, Five-minute break, and we'll be back for the bladder cancer session. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you.